Welcome to Not Your Ordinary Parts, a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience with the goal of increasing awareness, growth, and healing. You may hear information from professionally licensed therapists, life coaches, healers, doctors, etc. This information is not medical advice or therapy and is not meant to replace actual therapy or instruction given by a doctor or a personal therapist. I'm your host, Jalon Johnson. My guest today is Rachel Forbes. Rachel is a licensed therapist. She holds a master's degree in clinical social work, and through her practice, she offers a unique lens to therapeutic work and adoption advocacy. Rachel's approach is holistic and incorporates a meditative and mind-body experience that allows her clients to get to know the feelings they carry in their bodies. Rachel specializes in attachment trauma and adoption, helping adoptees and adoptive families understand and care for the many layers that exist within the adoption experience. Rachel's practice is founded upon the belief that we are all human, meaning that it is natural to feel a multitude of emotions that are both unique individually as well as interconnected with our relationship with others. So Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me a second time. I feel so honored. (laughs) Also, I'm so happy to have you for a second time as well. And what we're going to do today, I'm so excited for. But just to allow the listeners to know a little bit about you, could you give us a little bit of background about yourself and how you got to who and where you are today? Sure. I think you did a beautiful job. And I'm going to try my best to add on whatever could be more supportive to get for the audience to get to know me. So. Yes, I am a licensed clinical social worker, a therapist based out of Connecticut, and I do specialize in adoption, attachment trauma, um, and attachment trauma, and I work mostly with adults, largely also with adult adoptees, and I work, um, I draw largely from the internal family systems model, I incorporate a lot of somatic work as well. Um, a lot of work focused on helping to regulate the nervous system and help clients to feel a better, a, a, a greater sense of safety, felt sense of safety in their bodies. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, also, after our last episode, I had so much curiosity about adoption because I didn't really realize that adoption could be traumatic until we spoke. Um, I just always thought that there was a family you know, adopting a child or that a child was going to a family that, you know, they'd have a home and feel safe and all these different things. And until I I really learned about your experience, I was just like, wow, there's a whole nother side to it. And that's kind of what I wanted to explore today, along with uh, a few other things. Um, and that's kind of what has us here. So um, additionally, because I learned about that side of the adoption experience, I asked you if I could ask some really hard and vulnerable questions and you agreed to answer them for me. And when I saw your answers, I was so blown away. And I said, Rachel, we have to do an episode where we talk about (laughs) your experience and the answers to these questions, because I think so many people would be able to see this and recognize it in themselves um, and maybe be willing to talk about it. And all because we were willing to be vulnerable. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And a couple of things, right? One, I want to really say thank you to you for taking the time to listen and to consider and to reflect on everything I shared about adoption, particularly pertaining to trauma. That's a part of that process. 
um, because I do agree with you that I think that the general narrative around adoption is really positive and focused on the gifts of adoption and, you know, gratitude and hopefulness. And not often do we talk about or acknowledge the trauma and pain that's also associated with that process. Um, so thank you for, for hearing that. And yeah, I think it's, I, I really appreciate also the relationship that you and I have built in, in the sense that you felt, you felt comfortable asking me these really thought provoking, deep questions. And I also felt comfortable enough to share my answers with you. And so thank you internet for bringing us together, for getting <laughs> to have this opportunity and to get to share this now with your audience. Um, I think, you know, with any community that has a shared experience, it's so powerful to get to share with one another about what that experience has felt like. And there's this very unique, like felt resonance of what that feels like that I think is oftentimes hard to fully explain to someone who hasn't experienced that. And so I do think that vulnerability in this way and being honest and open about what our experiences are like can actually create greater depth for connection and a felt sense of belonging and understanding and feeling seen and heard. Um, so I think what both of us are going to talk about today can reach quite a number of people. I'm hoping so. Um, hoping to bring a felt sense of resonance and understanding. Me too. Um, and I think being able to hear it from the perspective of a therapist, you know, because before I started doing this, or even before I got into therapy, I looked at therapists as people just, you know, not not even really as normal people. Like you guys had all the tools, you had all the answers. You know, I didn't really think you guys struggled. Um, so when I was able to see this, I was just like, wow, like it it gave such a, a human side to people that I view, especially you as someone who, you know, is so special and so important. And the work that you do is so healing for so many people. So to kind of to have both of those angles now it just oh man it was it was kind of life-changing for me because i felt connected to you in the sense that we had also had our own struggles and that those struggles are still you know something that you deal with and are working through on a regular basis and you're a therapist yeah <laughs> yeah i love that and i think that you're right. You know, there's sometimes this expectation that, you know, therapists, because they're in this role, that they have it all together and they know it all. But actually, we are human, too. We have honestly therapy, my own therapy, um, attending my own therapy and receiving my own therapeutic support actually gave me probably the greatest tools to be able to be the therapist that I am today, to be able to show up for my clients in the, in the ways that I am now. I think that I learned, truly learned the most from my own inner work, from working with also like mentors who, you know, helped me to understand also the therapeutic relationship in this very unique way. And so I'm so grateful for therapy and I'm certainly mm -hmm. a huge advocate for it. I, I could not be where I am today without therapy. So thanks for naming that. Yeah, we're human. We're totally human. <laughs> <laughs> That's so... Um, encouraging to hear from a therapist because, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that therapists had therapists that they saw on their own, but with, with the burdens that people unload on you guys on top of your own life experience, I would, I would think that you would have to be able to go and talk to somebody 
you know? Yeah. And I think that like, so it's interesting. It's almost as if because I have done so much therapy, when I'm with my clients, it doesn't feel like a burdensome unload. Like I now yeah. have these inner resources where I can hold that space without taking it on. And I really think that getting to that place is from therapy, you know? Mm. So, um, but I, but I also do think, right. There's some such a thing as like, you know, compassion fatigue. And I yes. do think that any human being needs their own space to, you know, be held in their feelings, whether that's in therapy or with other people, but yeah, we're human. <laughs> Um, okay, so I wanted to kind of lay the groundwork for what we're going to do and what we're going to talk about. And um, I'm so excited and proud that we're able to do this because, you know, vulnerability begets vulnerability. And when someone can lay their insides out on the table for others to see, I think that that does so much for allowing um, there to be just an opportunity to feel like you can also be or do the same thing because you relate to it. That relatability is something that can cause people to really, you know, shift and do a 180 and, and with their emotional health, their mental health, and so many other ways. Um, but because you specialize in adoptee trauma and adoption experience. And because you're also an adoptee, I wanted to allow you an opportunity to talk about what that experience may look like that the general public may not always see um, from an adoptive parent side and also from the children. Yeah. Thank you for that, for that mm -hmm. invitation. Um, firstly, I'd like to say that any and all, there's there's such a spectrum within the adoptee experience and adoption constellation experience. When I say constellation, I'm talking about any people who are a part of the adoption process, which could be adoptive parents, birth parents, foster families, any sort of even social workers that are a part of the process. So anybody who is a part of the constellation, I would just like to name that there isn't one particular way that the adoptee experience is experienced. It's there's such a spectrum, and it really differs for many people. Um, what I'm really focusing on today, which has been part of my experience, is the relinquishment trauma. So the severance of attachment between baby and birth family, birth um, birth family, birth culture, and birth mother or birth parent, and. Well, we know a lot about attachment trauma, just in general, in the therapeutic realm. I don't think that we've talked enough about um, the trauma, the, the attachment trauma that happens for adoptees, especially because it's so publicly like celebrated as something really joyous, um, that we don't talk enough about actually the long-term consequence for adoptees in terms of their own emotion regulation, felt sense of belonging, felt sense of safety, um, that can have real consequence with that severance of attachment and not just, you know, severance of attachment during the relinquishment, but also the kind of relationship and distress perhaps birth parent or birth mother was experiencing um, while in utero. So we're really talking about this attachment with birth family and the loss of that and that, that it's long-term impact. Mm. Yeah. Well, I want to say thank you for advocating for 
um, adoptees because, like I said, I knew nothing about this. So for you to be able to provide a safe space where individuals who you know may have experienced some trauma with the adoption experience to be seen, heard, and to express themselves, I know that that has to do so much for your client. So thank you for that. Yeah, it's it's like it's so true that there is something to be said about like knowing what certain experiences, like particularly like visceral experiences are that perhaps are really difficult to explain or put into words, that just the knowing that I'm an adoptee, there's a sense of like trust with clients that are like, okay, you actually really know what this feels like. This isn't just sort of something you've read out of a textbook. You really understand what I'm feeling. And Mm. I think that's really powerful in any kind of community where there's a felt shared experience. Yeah. I agree. I agree 100%. Um, So to get into a little bit more of how and why (laughs) you understand what it feels like, um, as I mentioned, I had sent you some questions and you answered them. And uh, we chose to let that be part of this episode and you were going to answer the questions. And, And I didn't want you to feel pressure to try and remember them. Um, and your answers were so good. I said, well, why don't you just read the answers and then we can talk about it. Um, so I'll ask you the questions and you can read your answers and then we can just have some candid conversation surrounding your answers. And then because, (laughs) um, I guess you felt okay with answering the questions with me you also asked me some questions too that were super personal (laughs) (laughs) i said that they were rude (laughs) my stupid um, questions (laughs) (laughs) i'm also going to allow you the opportunity to ask me those questions and i'll share my answers with you in this episode so that we're both being vulnerable and it's not just you Thank you for doing this with me. I know it takes a lot of courage to be vulnerable Mm. for both of us. So let's acknowledge that and lean into it. Let's do it. Exactly. Let's do it. So I'll start by um, asking you the questions that I sent. Mm -hmm. And um, you can read your answers and then we'll just talk about it. So the, the first question that I asked was, did being adopted give a false sense of safety that in the long term disconnected you from yourself? Oh, such a gorgeous question, Jalan. So yeah, here's my here's my written answer, which by the way, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to read it because I think I have more time to consider my answer when I write. So thank you. So I said, a great question. See, this is why you're a podcast host. I'd like to replace the phrase false sense of safety with a sense of safety that was incomplete. On the one hand, it offered all of the basic needs that may or may not have been met by my birth family, who were were unknown. So safety in that regard. They also offered a lot of love, affection, time, care, commitment, and it didn't and it didn't make me feel entirely safe because there was a baby inside who lost someone extraordinarily significant without any say, without any consent. But my body deeply remembers the fear, helplessness, powerlessness, and loss. And that kind of safety slash security of bond connection with the person whose womb I grew inside can never be offered, returned, or redeemed. That is tragic. So it didn't disconnect me more from me 
but it did not offer a full embodied sense of safety that I believe humans need, nor will it ever. Wow, Rachel. So many things I thought about when I saw that answer. Um, First was the fact that you didn't know your birth parents at all. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I thought to myself, wow, like, how must that feel to go through life with, Mm -hmm. you know, with, I don't know if that that pit in your stomach or just that unknowing or, um, I mean, it was something I never considered. And I never thought about an adoptive process in a way that could be tragic, like you mentioned. Um, Mm -hmm. There was just so so many things. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I think that like with birth families, it almost seems like something that we can take for granted. And that, and I, and I don't, I don't mean that in the sense of like disregarding biological families that have their own dysfunction, their own trauma, their own issues. Right. But just sort of like having no zero connectedness or even familiarity or even just like seeing or knowing you know, where you come from, your roots to this earth, it has impact. It has impact. And it's something that even if it is dysfunctional, there's a felt sense of, I know where I came from. Like, I know my roots to this earth. While I may not fully resonate with them, nor do I like, do I agree or align with the ways in which they've parented? I, I can see my ancestry. I'm in relationship with my ancestry. And the loss of that it's hard to exp- it's hard to put in words how that feels and its its consequence but yeah mm-hmm. um man it it almost makes me want to try to do something to help like the first thing i think of is the baby that you mentioned and it's like i wh- yeah. you know what can i do um mm-hmm. but also it's i know that it's not my responsibility to yeah but also I want to, you know what I'm saying? Um, of course. And that's your like love and care. And that's your, honestly, that's your self energy is like, hmm. I want to hold that baby. Right. And actually that is what I do with that baby. That is what I do with this, you know, this baby that will sometimes come forward that feels really powerless and helpless. This part of me um, that I know she's in pain and I just hold her and I hold her and I'm with her and I let her know that I'm with her and that, it is really tragic that she lost this and there isn't necessarily, you know, I can bring her a felt sense of safety in my body, but we can't undo what's happened. And I can't change actually circumstantially that she's lost her connectedness with her biological family. So I really do. I do spend time with that baby in me. Yeah. Have you tried to find your biological family? I have, and I'm in process again of Mm. reaching out in a different kind of way. Um, I was adopted from Korea, and Korean adoption agencies are under some investigation for falsifying documents and misconduct. And so I'm going a different route um, in hopes of finding just, just having some clarity for myself. Um, but I have, and according to the conversations that I've had with adoption agencies, uh, my birth mother 
I was, according to my papers, I was born out of wedlock, which is um, culturally very shameful in Korean society and culture. And so it's, it's large, probably a great source of like pain and shame and, you know, particular challenging feelings for my birth mother. So according to the adoption agency, she is not ready to do that, which would make a lot of sense. It could be too emotionally traumatic and painful. And particularly if, you know, other people in her life don't know about me, um, Mm. it can cause a lot of unearthing some real deep pain. And so it's very possible that that's accurate. Yeah. Which I understand. Mm -hmm. Have you envisioned seeing her for the first time? Yeah. And then I'm just brought to tears a bit, you know? Mm. But the interesting thing is that, and I, I think I answer, I say this in a, in a question that you asked in one of my answers is that it's actually not me in the present day that like yearns for a relationship with her because the truth is we're complete strangers to one another in a lot, in most ways, mm-hmm. but actually that it's like the baby in me that yearns for her. And so there's this interesting, like, dissonance right i'm in the present day you're a total stranger but there is this much younger part of me that i can feel in my body that mourns for her that misses her that yearns for her that looks forward to getting to to reunite with her right um but when i even heard back from the agency you know my birth mother's response there was this immediate awareness that i have no idea who this person is right yeah, so interesting. That's deep. Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't want to ask any more questions that may take away from <laughs> other answers. No, that's so. okay. <laughs> Beautiful um, questions. Thank you. Thank you for answering. Thank you for sharing such vulnerability. Um, the second question that I asked was, "Do did you or do you feel cheated? I love this question. Um, so I said, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. I feel cheated by a world that has so many layers that contribute to people's emotional, physical, spiritual, and financial limitations. But then again, so are we all, and perhaps that's life. This means I feel that my birth mother was cheated by a society that stigmatizes and shames women for bearing children out of wedlock and under unforeseen circumstances. I feel that that had significant consequences for me. I feel cheated by an adoption industry that profits off of the inherent trauma that comes along with separating a child from their parents without fully informing and educating adoptive families um, with what that really means and what that entails in parenting. I feel cheated too by the lack of um, honestly emotional labor that my adoptive parents did for themselves that also had some serious emotional consequences for me. Um, But no, I did not feel cheated through adoption alone. I see the loving intention of bringing me to safety and also the joy slash fulfillment of to a childless family. But a lot of that came with great sacrifice for me personally. Hmm. So much there to unpack, my goodness. Um, Thank you for for sharing that and being so honest and candid and vulnerable. Um, One of the things you mentioned was that it could be shameful for your birth mother to have had you, I guess, out of wedlock or or in a way that wasn't a societal norm 
And that made me think about the pain that mm-hmm. she had to feel with giving up her child mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just how how difficult it is to to grasp the fact that there could be something that a society values more than a mother and child, you know? So beautifully said. So beautifully said. Yeah. It's, I can only imagine it being so burdensome and not painful. You know, um, the kind of bond that gets created in utero and having to anticipate severing that i can only imagine what that must feel like on top of the layers of like shame that are being burdened upon you by society um and or even your family so it must have been really hard really really hard and painful mm-hmm. yeah and then with the things i've learned about epigenetics um, mm-hmm. and the things that we carry in our dna mm-hmm. for you to have to be placed with another family that you have no connection with in Mm -hmm. any way. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, if, if they're not prepared emotionally for Mm -hmm. who you are as an individual, Mm -hmm. even as a baby, there could be some clashing there. There could be some change of heart and, and desire for a baby after they see Mm -hmm. how difficult it is, you know, sleep Mm -hmm. is nice and things like that. So it was just so much that, I thought about after you answered that question. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, we see that happening. We see adoptive families changing their minds. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, of course, too, a significant impact for baby. If this is an adoption at the age of infancy, Um, even, you know, the, the bonds that get formed in utero, and then there's a severance there, and then there's a foster family, the bond that gets formed there, then there's a severance there, and then there's adoptive family. You know, the kind of loss of attachment and the change can be so can be so impactful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. Okay. Um, my next question, and I remember feeling so like cringe about even asking this. Um, do you resent your biological parents? Why did you feel cringe? There's no cringe there. What do you mean? Because it just felt like a hard question. It, it was, you know, like it felt hard to ask because maybe Mm. if you did, I was unearthing some emotions that had been buried Mm. or that you had already felt in process and to have to relive them. So that was why I felt that way. Thank you for your consideration for my feelings. But I'm I'm grateful for all the therapy that I've done. So <laughs> <laughs> And also I think like my personality, I'm actually a pretty open book. So I'm I'm totally happy sharing this and thank you for asking this question because I think it's a my answer may not be shared among other adoptees. I have certainly met other adoptees who feel very differently about this. So mm-hmm. just so that it's named. Um, so for me personally, this is what I wrote. No, I grieve for them and for us. I hold so much compassion towards their humanity and miss them in my soul and spirit all the time. I long for them, but from a much younger place that wouldn't make sense in the present day. So I know we talked about that a little bit where, you know, 
I can feel in my body that this yearning and this missing and this longing and this grieving is younger, is much, you know, is this younger part of me that, again, like I said in my, in my message, um, doesn't make sense to today. Um, if I had the opportunity, of course, I would love to, to get to know her and just even see what she looks like, um, both her and actually also my uh, birth father which is interesting. Birth fathers aren't usually talked about, mm-hmm. um, but I'm curious about both and just feeling their vibes, honestly, getting to sense their energy and sort of seeing what I pick up on. If I see any resonance um, with me, just seeing myself reflected would be powerful, but I have no resentment towards them. I just, I see their humanity. I see that truly they were doing the best that they could with what they had. And I mean, like, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically, financially, all of the above. Um, and while I miss them, again, just no resentment. Yeah. Did it take a lot of work to get to that place to where you could hold space and compassion for them? Um, or was that how you felt just kind of whenever you thought about them? Um, such a good question. Gosh, Jalon, you're so good at questions. <laughs> um, I remember as a child, as like a five-year-old, I was, I would cry when I thought of my birth mother and I was always wondering about how she felt. Like I was curious about her feelings. And so I think I've always had this capacity for like empathy and compassion towards her. But of course, in like my teen years, I was pissed. But then when I actually dove deep and made contact with that part of me, I mean, it was deep work. It took deep therapeutic work, but it also simultaneously came kind of naturally because I had already been thinking about what she must be experiencing, too. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Okay. The next one I asked was... Did your worth and self-esteem suffer from adoption? And my answer is absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I inherited a belief that I was unlovable, broken, unworthy through my birth mother relinquishing me. All untrue, but damn, it took a lot of work to unlearn that. And I am also, and I'm always revisiting that baby who carries that belief. I also felt unlovable, ugly, and fetishized slash dehumanized as one of the few Asian people in my community. There were things that also happened in my, um, and a part of me is actually considering what I actually do want to share today. So actually, mm-hmm. I, may, I may not, I'm not going to okay. add that last line. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean... And again, it's important to name that, like, not all adoptees experience these same things. But I will say that even in working with adoptees, talking with other adoptees, there are some themes, you know, and this inherited beliefs about ourselves in relationship, in relationship to that relinquishment. I find that there are just some real common themes. Again, it's not universal. It's not true for everyone, but this felt sense of like, there's something wrong with me for me to have not been kept by my birth mother, for my own birth mother to not want me. 
was the like, you know, the, the narrative, the belief, the trope. And so that is a part that I revisit all the time, you know, when something happens that then I feel that way. I know the roots of that when it feels really deep, you know, when we know that, yeah. oh, this is historical. There's something coming up for me. Um, yeah. Well, thank you. You're so brave because when I, I remember when I was asking these questions or just thinking about, um, I was so scared to ask you, like, do you mind if I ask you some questions? Because I just, I didn't want to pry. I didn't want you to feel like I was being intrusive. Um, but I put myself in your shoes and these were the things that came up for me because, you know, we all have our mm -hmm. struggles with insecurities and so many other things. And when I added adoption onto that for myself, I said, oh, man, like, I wonder how she would feel if these questions were posed to her, because just thinking about it from my end, like I would be, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to talk about it. I wouldn't want to share it. I would just want to bury it and try and keep moving as best I know how. But that's also, I think, me um, sharing my perspective. I won't say unhealed, but with without as much healing work and um, opportunity as you have because of you know what you do. And the amount of therapy that you've had to. So. Definitely the amount of therapy. <laughs> but I, I really, it's so beautiful that you took the time to like really pause and reflect and try to empathize, try to sympathize and understand about what that must have felt like. So thank you so much for asking. You know, I think it's, it's such a form of care to ask somebody, what has this been like for you? So really thank you for asking me it's such a such a kind friend you know so i think that that in and of itself is really powerful and i hear what you're saying in that from how your system has been operating and or is operating that you may not have the same kind of response as i'm having right now but again i just want to say tons of therapy right. <laughs> tons of therapy for me you know um to arrive here for which I'm so grateful, but yeah, it's, there's some depth. There's really some depth to what we've experienced in early life and how that influences us. Yeah. Great. Great. Which we'll get into <laughs> you later. <laughs> <laughs> we sure will. <laughs> um, my next question was, did you look for outside validation from others? Yeah, and my answer is, of course, from everyone and everything. And I connect that, too, with a sense of belonging, validation that I, too, belong, that I, too, am worthy of being loved, seen, and cared for inherently. And I don't think that that's, like, inherently a bad thing, that we seek a sense of belonging and connectedness with other people, because I think that we as human beings, as social beings, we need other people. And I think there's this beautiful balance between our capacity to hold that for ourselves, to see that within ourselves, as well as to really see that reflected for us within our community, um, reflected back to us from our community and the people around us. I, I, I don't agree with this whole, you have to love yourself first before you can 
um, you know, be in relationship with other people. I think that it's not as binary. It's not as black and white. It's just, we need both, right? We need to have love for ourselves to be able to receive even the love from other people, but also we need to know that love from other people is possible and also safe. So I think that, yeah, I definitely did. And it wasn't always a bad thing because I definitely received a lot of genuine love and care from some really amazing people in my life. So thank you for that answer. Yeah. Um, Okay. So this one is a big one. (laughs) How did your romantic relationships suffer slash prosper from your experience? Ugh. Such a good question. You know, it's like, these are amazing questions. And I kind of now I'm wishing that I had just said, all right, now you answer your own questions. <laughs> although, <laughs> although I know some of them with the adoption may not have applied, but like, yeah, some of these, if you're open to it, I might ask you one of these questions like this one. This is a great one that I think okay. is so universally shared for people. Um, I so my answer was so much suffering for so long. <laughs> and I wrote, LOL. My anxiously attached parts seeking affirmation that I'm lovable, though also with utter distrust that people could actually deliver that and or mean that, or that I was worthy of that, made me a push-pull partner. So I'd like show up with my charm, my wit, my facade of like lovability. They would love me and then I wouldn't trust them. And I would find all of these ways to try to push them away. And then once they left, I would get angry and desperate when they would leave. So I sought redemption for the part of me that felt so abandoned and unloved through my partnerships until I finally went to so much therapy and learned that that's not my partner's job. My partner can create safety for that part of me and for those parts of me that feel insecure and unsafe. But all that scratching I was doing towards them was not fair, was harmful sometimes even emotionally abusive, and it was never their job to heal this part of me. Hard stuff. Um, And so I'm super, I mean, my partnership today, the two of us have been together for a long time, and we have both done so much work on both ourselves and within the relationship. Um, And now we really are so respectful of our own like parts and our own ways of processing. And I'm so grateful for that. It's, it's like such a strengthening attribute to a relationship to be able to see the ways in which you contribute, what belongs to you, what also is not your partner's responsibility. And then the mutual willingness to like, to work with that because that's the human experience, but it's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah. That answer was so amazing. Um, and if you decide to ask me that question, I'm just going to read your answer back to you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have, if you have a similar experience, yeah. Yeah. I think the, have- secu- the security, the, the, the secure attachment that we look for if we didn't have security um, at a young age bleeds right over into relationships. But mm-hmm. because we didn't learn how to trust, like you said, like, it is going to be that push pull. You're going to trust or you're going to allow someone in and you're not going to trust them. Then you're going to leave and then you're going to get mad. Like 
mm-hmm. that cycle, I was just like, wow, I resonated with that so much because it was exactly my experience to the T. Mm. Um, wow. Because I would want love, mm-hmm. but then I didn't know how to receive it. Mm-hmm. And the only love that I was good at, per se, was romantic love because that was the only love that hadn't been tainted for me. But I was tainting mm-hmm. it myself. So I was literally yeah. backing myself into a corner and then asking questions, you know, trying to figure out why I couldn't have anything that would work. And it was because I didn't know how to communicate. Um, I didn't know how to let go and let my walls down. I didn't know how to be vulnerable. None of those things. And then, you know, I finally realized at a certain point, you know, because I feel like at a certain point, love and life will kind of run their course. Like love, life doesn't care anything about love. You can't go to your job and say, hey, listen, I want to take a personal love day tomorrow, like a personal, a mental health day or something. (laughs) You have to live. And when you mix those two worlds, it's a lot of work. And if you can't, and if you don't have the emotional capacity to know how to uh, do hard things, especially, you know, in a a relationship where you have to be giving and you have to listen and you have to be, you can't be selfish. um, It gets hard. It gets hard. So your answer, I thought, was so good. It's so hard. And thank you so much for sharing that, that it really resonated with you, that you know what that feels like, because mm-hmm. I really, I really receive that, like, you get it, you know, you mm-hmm. get it. And it's such a trust building process. And it's a process. It's a process. But like, I think it speaks to our own courage for both of us to hold ourselves accountable a bit for what we've brought to the conflict or challenges in our relationships, which isn't easy. It's not easy to do it's that. Not, self-reflection yeah. is not easy, especially when you've, you've had a rough time um, or you've had some traumatic experience that you, experiences that you've had to go through without help or without mm-hmm. anyone that you could talk to that could help you challenge your thinking. So you've, you've developed a, a way of thinking, a way of being that may not be healthy or correct, but you've been doing it for so long and it's gotten you by. Mm-hmm. And now you have someone telling you this isn't right. So it's mm-hmm. like a blow to your ego. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that you do is you, you have to allow your ego to move out of the way in order to receive yeah. what's being said so that you don't feel attacked. Yeah, and it's t- totally. It's so it's so hard. And I think a question that I started to have to ask myself was, has it really been working? You know, like mm. when we say, well, yeah, we've made it this far. We've survived this far. It's sort of, it's kind of worked, but like, has it really worked in the way that I want or need a relationship to actually feel? Like where I, do I actually feel safe? Do I actually feel secure? Is this really how I want to feel? You know, so I think also really asking myself, is it working? Was really important. And I think I had And even those questions, even those questions can feel threatening, um, especially if you have a dysregulated nervous system or if you're not Uh used to 
having to be mature emotionally or to just sit Mm -hmm. with your feelings or feel your feelings. Yes. Yes. It sounds so simple, but actually you're right. It's like, if that is so unfamiliar and far too risky to do, it's that in and of itself is such a process to, to become acquainted with your body, your feelings. Yeah. Totally. I just realized that was your last question and now it's my turn. (laughs) And I kind of, Got you in on that question. <laughs> Thank you, you sure so did. much. Thank you so much for answering. You're welcome. You're welcome. And thank you for asking these gorgeous questions. And I'm honestly so excited to allow your audience to get to know you honestly a little bit more because I know you're on the other end the majority of the time, if not always, where you are asking these incredibly thought provoking, loving questions. And so what a special opportunity to get to share about what's going on for you. I agree. Yeah. I'm ready for it. All right. All right. Okay. So my first question for you is in earlier life, like childhood, what most significantly impacted your sense of self? Do you think? Okay. I'm going to read my answer and then we can talk about it. I would have to say that my parents' divorce was the most significant thing. I'm able now to see and feel the impact it had on me emotionally and how deeply it fragmented my sense of safety and self. I'm highly sensitive and have always had big feelings, so I was like a fish out of water in my family system. I was looking for a secure attachment and unable to find it because my parents nor my older brother could offer it because they were all dealing with their own mental and emotional struggles without any idea of how to do anything other than survive. That combined with an abusive, narcissistic stepfather, caregivers in a community that spiritually bypassed, avoided, and were unable to feel their feelings or the slightest hint of discomfort, left me feeling like a crying, lost child in a mall full of crowded people looking for someone I knew. I had the opportunity to get to read that answer before you just shared it and hearing you say it out loud just now i mean firstly the way that you you speak sounds like poetry to me a lot of the time and i know that we've talked about that a little bit but thank you so much for that for that response and i feel like i'm right there with you the way you just described that and i hear this like the the fragmentation when you had said to this lack of felt sense of safety, you know, and I hear this sort of lack of connectedness Mm. that you experienced and this sort of being in this crowded space and searching for connection and connectedness and like felt connectedness. There's like that, that reach, but like powerlessness over who's gonna, who's gonna come. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember when you sent me the questions I was so mad at you (laughs) because I was like, oh, my goodness, this is going to take. And I sat with them because it's been months since since um, we said we were going to do this. And I won't say I avoided them. And at first I said, you know what, I'll answer them for the first time or I'll answer them looking at them for the first time because I hadn't looked at them until a couple of days ago. And I said, "Okay, I would rather also write something down 
to read and then be able to talk about it because it may be mm. too much for me to try and come up with an answer in the moment. So um, I'm glad you asked these questions. And, and I think that it did make me have to, to dig pretty deep to, to answer them. And I do also appreciate the opportunity to be vulnerable too. So thank you. Yeah. And I think you, you touched on something that a lot of people experience in early life is having divorced parents. And so I appreciate your naming. I mean, with great depth, um, what that felt like for you. Because I also don't know how much that really gets talked about with that kind of depth of how that feels, a lost sense of, of safety, feeling safe, for example, and the fragmentation you mentioned. Yeah. I agree. I, I don't think that, um, you know, I, I think that especially as a man, um, you you kind of pride yourself in how many licks you can take without falling. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, most people, not most people, but a lot of times if you have a family or if you come from a broken family, it's just something that you can say, I was able to survive, you know, and it's kind of mm. looked at like as a, a trophy mm -hmm. or like, right. you know, a medal you can wear around your neck. Like, you right. know, another badge. Exactly. Just, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You but survive it, this, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it, there is, um, a toll and a cost that is felt, especially, and I don't think it matters if it happens when you're young or if it happens when you're older, because I think if it happens when you're older, there's this sense of being lied to mm. that you may feel, um, mm -hmm. So I, I just think that it's tough either way. There, there's no yeah. way around it. Um, yeah, yeah. And and that was something that I wanted to bring to light. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for doing that. And I'm curious, have you talked about it with other people who have also had, um, who've, whose parents have also divorced? Have you like shared I... and found that, people feel similarly to you or I have, but it's also, um, unless the person is in therapy or, or doing deep emotional work, it's kind of difficult because you almost speak a different language. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have spoken about it, but not at great lengths and in great detail. Got it. Got it. Cause I'm just thinking about also just like that felt resonance of understanding. And you mm. also mentioned um, having a narcissistic parent, mm. um, which I think too is unfortunately can happen quite often. And we see that, you know, we see that. And so I'm curious too, is, is that something that you've ever really talked about before? Something that you've been able to share or like have other people understand what that's like? Well, I go into detail with oh, that you... in the next question so. <laughs> all right so let's great thank you for reminding me <laughs> no worries but let's go ahead let's dive into that one then okay what was slash is your greatest fear and where did that come from and also what is your relationship with that fear now sure i would have to say that confrontation is number one and abandonment is a close second but there isn't one without the other 
mm-hmm. abandonment because in my young mind, my dad's inability to meet my needs translate to me that I was unwanted and that was God awful pain. I still feel it, even though intellectually I understand that it was never the truth. But my body doesn't know but my body doesn't know that because it can't differentiate between same and similar. So it's still a pain and heartache I carry. Confrontation is from learning that it wasn't safe to have an opinion or feelings that didn't align with my stepfather's. He was extremely emotionally abusive, emotionally immature, controlling, jealous, demanding, and verbally abusive, and it caused me to lose my voice. I couldn't just be me, and because I lost my voice and sense of self at a young age, I became super passive, people-pleasing, and learned to avoid conflict at all costs. So... Now things that feel like conflict collapse my nervous system and I'm immobilized to the point of hardly being able to function. I did some deep work with my therapist and learned that what happens when I feel the threat of conflict is called dorsal vagal collapse. And it's my brain preparing my body for death because it feels the threat is so great. Now that I'm able to recognize and identify and understand what happens, I can now feel it and step back and say, okay, I know this is in the past. I know that in the past, this may have been necessary, but in this moment, there is no threat and we're okay. And because I'm able to do that, it prevents such a huge debilitating nervous system response. And the more I work at it, the easier it gets and the time to rebound lessens. Uh, My relationship with fear now is that I understand that the part of me that developed that developed with when I was scared or felt abandoned, loved me so much and wanted so badly to protect me from pain and hurt that it would take over in my absence or inability to cope because it knew that I was overwhelmed that I, or that I couldn't handle it. So I'm grateful and I try to be curious as possible now when I'm afraid to see what the message is and how I can rewrite the programming that doesn't serve me any longer. So many layers in that, too. I mean, you really just walked us through not only naming what it was like, but also what you have done since then to get to know that part of you and to also help that part of you. So thank you for that really beautiful answer. And and thank you for naming that dorsal vagal response, um, because and and the way in which you've built a relationship with your protective responses. I think that's such a beautiful thing to name for your audience to hear too, is that this was an adaptive mechanism, right? Because that, that, um, that threat was so great. And so thank you for naming that and, you know, naming this new relationship you can have with that protective part of you that really actually just wanted to keep you safer from, ever feeling that kind of threat ever again. And so right. when you said, you know, this this reprogramming that you've developed and the way in which you you meet this part when he does show up. Um and when you show him, it sounds like you show this part of you that we're in the present and that it's we're no longer in that threatening place. I'm curious like could you share with us about how he responds to that? How does that feel in your body when you offer that new perspective. I remember the last time it happened. And as I started feeling it, I said, oh my God, that's what that is. And it literally felt like 
the life was draining out of my body. And I, I was completely in my head. Wow. And I said, wow, all these years I've been feeling this. And I recognize that it is my body's response to threat or danger. Um, and it, I, it still happened. But because I was able to recognize it, it didn't take because normally, like if it happens, I am just staring off into the distance. Mm -hmm. um, You're just in it. You're just right. hijacked by it. Mm -hmm. Hijack 100 um, percent. And I, I recognize why it happened when it was happening. But it wasn't a full hijack because I was able to kind of step back and, you know, be on the observation deck, so to speak and see what was going on and like take notes like, okay. And then my next session that I had with my therapist, I told her about it and she told me that that was dorsal vagal collapse. And that is similar to like, if a gazelle is caught by a lion, its nervous system is preparing it for death and it won't feel pain as much while it's being eaten alive because its body has removed I guess the the parts or the um what word am I looking for it it because of the transition in the nervous system the there isn't pain that's felt because the body's being prepared for death and i I thought to myself, well, there's no lion around me, but maybe there was at a certain time, but that's not the case anymore. So now when I feel that I need to be able to welcome the part that is trying to protect me, thank it, but also reassure it that the threat is not there and we can move on. So that's where the, re the reprogramming comes in. Such a beautiful breakdown. Thank you so much for sharing. <laughs> Thanks I mean, for asking. I love when you said there's no lion. Yeah, because that's what it feels like. That's what it right. can really feel like. And when you mentioned like the observation deck, right? That's so key to mm -hmm. have that ability to become an observer, to bear witness to what is happening in my body. And I could see in your eyes sort of like the shock of bearing witness for the first time of like, yeah, this is happening. This is how I experience that. Wow. What a powerful tool to have. And so just curious when you offer that perspective and when you show that protector, you know, we don't have to do this right now. There is no immediate threat right now. How then do you feel in your body? Well, it stops at yeah. that point. And then I start to calm down. I mean, it's still yeah. a huge nervous system response because it's been happening for so long. Mm -hmm. but it doesn't become like a full-blown hijacking. And I'm able mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, give that part a hug and say, I know, I know, I know that you're trying to protect me and I get it. And you've, yeah. you've done it for so long. You did such a good job, but we're okay now, you know? Yeah. And then it just kind of slowly reverses. Yeah. Thanks for naming the like slowness of that process. Cause yeah. you're right. It's like rewiring years and years of the ways in which you've been operating. Right. Indeed. Thank you. So the next question is, what resource within yourself do you feel most grateful for? 
that would have to be my ability to hustle. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a quote that I absolutely love, and I think it personifies my drive and work ethic so much. The quote is, we're told that talent creates its own opportunities, but it sometimes seems that intense desire creates not only its own opportunities, but its own talents. Um, And because my parents and grandparents, grandparents were such a disadvantage, the only thing that they could do to try and bridge the gap was work harder. And that was fortunately and unfortunately passed down to me. Um, I do feel like it's a gift and a curse because at times, most times, I'm not balanced and I would literally work myself sick um, because I feel like my worth and value was measured in my accomplishments and love was conditional based on my performance. Wow. You named a couple of things there, some generational work, Mm -hmm. right? And also how this can be both a burden and a gift. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, when you consider your ancestors and what they had to do and the decisions that they had to make, I hear your gratitude, but also an awareness that it had consequence for you too. Does that, does that feel yes, true? Yes, yeah. 100%. Because yeah. I don't have to survive. Right. But they, they did, right? So even mm-hmm. now, like my mom, I'll talk to her and she'll ask me how my son is doing. And she'll say, does he have a job yet? And mm-hmm. I say no. And she goes, you have to instill in him um, the need to work hard. And I say, well, he's he's working hard now. He's working mm-hmm. hard at his job, which is school, and he's doing amazing at it. So outside of that, we're good. And she can't comprehend that because mm-hmm. her father died when she was five, I think. She was the oldest girl in her family, and her mother was never home because she was always working. So she had mm-hmm. to run a household at a very young age. And then as soon as she was old enough to work, she had to work, which in turn she carried on to us because we, I remember I was five and I had a job selling newspapers. Oh, wow. And for what? She was so proud because she was seeing her legacy of hard work continue, but it was also unnecessary because I could have been mm-hmm. playing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? but and look her at values, you breaking. Yeah, no, go yeah, ahead. I'm saying her values were something that didn't need to be passed down to me. Um, yeah. Because they didn't, they didn't work for me in, in my lived experience. Like I, I, didn't, I don't need to work at five now yeah. because my father didn't die when I was five. And I don't have mm-hmm. a household to run as a child, right? So mm-hmm. it's almost like having a new iPhone with old software. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So good with the analogies today. <laughs> <laughs> and that's yeah. what I try to convey to her, but she just yeah. doesn't get it. But but also she's yeah. in therapy too. So I'm I'm proud that I was able to get her in therapy and that she's doing work. Good for you, mom. It's hard work. But mm-hmm. I mean, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about like this wiring, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's hard to undo until and when we become observers and become aware of this pattern that we're carrying that no longer, like you're saying, no longer serves us in the same way as perhaps it once did and look at you breaking generational burdens over here when you <laughs> even just like the way you named how you would respond to her when her fear would step into the space and express concern 
you basically are saying, oh, that's not mine. It doesn't apply yeah. to us. I see it, but it's not mine. It's not mine. And Powerful. that's difficult too, because she sees it as a form of disrespect because I'm rejecting um, her wisdom, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I have to let her know it's not that. Mm-hmm. We just don't need that now. You mm-hmm. did amazing. You did amazing with what you needed to do when you needed to do it. But yeah. now you can rest. Yeah. Yeah. Hoping she'll get to receive that in this lifetime. Me too. So loving. Beautiful. Thank you. Who in your personal life do you admire the most and why? I would say my son. Um, And this was a hard question for me because I don't think I've ever really had to sit with it. Um, But here's why. He is so effortless in his authenticity and abilities. And if I had to narrow down a reason why, it's because I feel like I'm the cycle breaker in my family. So he isn't Mm. burdened with anxiety, fear, worry, et cetera. He's able to thrive and function without interference. And he's easily able to reach his full potential effortlessly. And to watch that is priceless. I love that you named the cycle breaker in you because that's so true. <laughs> it's just amazing. And it's it's hard work. It's not easy to be a cycle breaker. No. But my goodness, are you like bearing witness to the benefits of that? I mean, like the the gifts you're passing down to future generations having done that work. And it it's was really beautiful. I felt almost didn't feel right accepting that I was because, you know, there may have been other cycles broken before me, mm-hmm. but I think, excuse me, as far as recognizing old patterns and, and trauma responses and seeing them for what they are, because I've had to live them for so long and notice how they mm. didn't serve me or how they didn't benefit me. Those were the things that I wanted to stop. So powerful. And again, takes so much courage to do. Like, but yeah, it's definitely not easy. Mm-mm, mm-mm. And like you said, like revisiting it over and over again with hopefully more and more love each time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Did you share that with your son? Not yet, no, but I will. Beautiful. Um, Which protective part has felt like the most challenging to get to know and develop a relationship with? Why do you think that is? Okay. Um, I think that was the first protective part that I really got to know, which was my people-pleaser part. Uh, For so long, it protected me by keeping me small and taught me how to align and attune with others' emotions and their emotional state so as not to upset anyone, disturb the peace, or ruffle feathers. Um, But it came at my expense because I was basically a doormat. Um, And once I realized that it wasn't protecting me and that I could unburden that part, it was such a relief and I felt it in my body instantly. So now in any given situation where I feel the need to people-please, it's because that part is starting to warm up in the bullpen like a relief pitcher in a baseball game. But once I give it reassurance that I'm good, that part can relax again. 
Um, it was so challenging to get to know this part because it was absolutely necessary for this part to protect me and keep me small because that's where it was safe for me. But I grew out of necessity for that role and the transition of power was very tough. Seeing a theme here, a little bit of no longer needing it, right? That that need no longer exists and like time traveling your body from this these time periods when it was needed and then finding mm. yourself in a time period where it's not needed. Right. Yeah. And I and I think the recognition of that is what allows me to be able to kind of shed that skin, so to speak. Yeah. But it's also hard because that skin has been with me forever and has been all I've known. It's it's been my operating system. Um oh. so it's difficult to to grasp the concept that I do have to change because change is uncomfortable. And then, you know, that means I now have to create a new way of being and a new way to operate. And I have to show up differently in the world. And this new me um, may be uncomfortable for the established relationships that I already have because I've shown up a certain way for so long. And it may be threatening to other people for me to show up as this new version of myself, Um, even even threatening to myself at times. And I I realize that. And and that's why that, you know, that observation deck, like I mentioned, is so important, because when I see and feel these things. I try and step back, see what the message is, um, receive it, and then wow. act accordingly. And it's a lot of work. It is. And it's even like as you name those steps, like, and it may be hard, you know, for those who are doing the work right now, it's like, you know, that those steps, while they sound clear and simple, it's such a process. It's mm-hmm. such a process. and. Yeah, thanks for continuing to name that it's hard and that there's this like wiring that has been there for so long and has served you in so many loving, like intentional loving ways that to try to change that takes time, takes time. It does, for yeah. sure. And people pleasing is a hard one because it can get so easily, it can get conflated too with like kindness, right? So sometimes do you find that you have to sort of check yourself to to assess, am I doing this out of kindness or am I doing this for my people-pleasing part? Well, now that I'm able to recognize it, like there will be instances to where like I would be having a conversation with somebody and they would ask me a question like, have you seen this movie or have you been there? And to be so agreeable, I would just say yes. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I felt like saying no would make them want to stop the conversation. And if they stop mm-hmm. the conversation, then, you know, they don't want to talk to me. If they don't want to talk to me, do they really like me? Am I being a good? It was like this, this whole rabbit hole that I would go down to or go down. So now understanding that I can say, no, I haven't seen the movie, but, you know, finish what you're going to say. And it, the <laughs> conversation literally happens the same way. like. Yeah. Even grasping that concept for me, like that's how deeply um, I had gotten into people pleasing was that I I felt like I had to not be myself Mm -hmm. or that I couldn't be me in order for others, in order to have a relationship with others. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And now that I'm able to recognize those things, you know, it 
it allows me to just be able to be authentic. And if that means that things will change, well, then those changes were probably necessary and needed to begin with. And I think you named something really um, impactful, too, of when you did say, no, haven't seen it. And you you got to experience the safety of saying that, right? So, like, mm-hmm. actually seeing that people aren't going to leave when you have your own opinions. People aren't going to abandon you when you give voice to how you truly feel or, or what's real for you or the people who you want in your life, the good friends are not going to, they're going to stay. It's, it's amazing also how we need to experience some of that too, to like actually feel that safety is possible when we do that. Yeah. I feel like that's part of the learning process of, you know, you do it once, you kind of dip your toes in the water. Yeah. And then you get comfortable. You know, the pool might be cold at first, but the more time you spend in it, the more it warms up. Look at you with these analogies today. So good. <laughs> yes. Yes. So good. Yeah, totally. It's just like that, especially because I hate cold water. So, yeah, it takes a while. Once we're in, we're in. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, thankfully, my questions are over. <laughs> thankfully? Was that so bad? I'm just kidding. No, it wasn't at all. Actually, it wasn't at all. Um, but I do have no, just hard. a couple more. They were hard, but, you know, being able to to do it in this space with you, number one, I feel safe and I feel comfortable because I'm just reciprocating what you already did. So I, yeah. I think it was a great experience. And I have just a couple more questions before mm-hmm. we wrap up. Um one is that as a clinician, what do you wish to accomplish most? Hmm. I wish to accomplish most as a clinician, helping my clients honestly build that felt sense of safety and those inner resources that you've named today, for example, like being able to be on the observation deck, being able to become observers of their own experience and, um, you know, feeling both that confidence and deep knowing to be able to show up for themselves in the ways that they have always needed and will need for the future. And again, it's not just focused on, um, you know, how I show up for myself, but also experiencing felt sense of safety, even in the therapeutic relationship to, to have some of these really difficult feelings and for that to be okay. So this felt sense of safety, both in relationship, but also within themselves is what I hope to accomplish with my clients. That's great. Now, this is a question that I asked before in our first um, interview and we didn't get an opportunity to explore it completely. So I'm grateful that I have another opportunity to ask it. And that is, do you ever feel tokenized or that you have to work harder as an Asian female therapist? Yeah, such a good question. And a bit of a tricky one for me, especially because I'm also an adoptee where Mm. I think that, you know, my identity as like an Asian person, I've had to do a lot of work to re-remember my Asianhood. <laughs> it's, I know that sounds silly, but 
So when I'm, but I'm constantly reminded by the external world that I am Asian um, because of how I look. And I've like, for example, I've certainly experienced, you know, working with clients who have fetishized Asian women, which was an important, I mean, powerful experience for me as a clinician, but also um, I think that, you know, I've, it's interesting that that showed up in my work in that particular way. Um, but I think what I've experienced as feeling tokenized as an Asian therapist is more in like public panel spaces. Um, and that's, that's a tricky one too, because I do think that it's important to be able to speak as a person with experience, you know, as a person of color, as an Asian woman, as an Asian transracial adoptee. Um, but sometimes it also did feel as though I was serving the agenda of a particular agency, but then wasn't taken seriously in my like clinical advice or my, you know, advice for working with adoptive families. Um, that it's interesting now they're starting to like do that, but um, like, you know, do the things that I had originally advised, but, and I don't know if that's because I'm an adoptee or an, an Asian woman, but I know that certainly like there are parts of my identity that absolutely influence the ways in which I'm taken seriously or treated. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I wish that you didn't have to feel that way because of how you look or because of your culture, but I know that that is a real thing. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to express your feelings about that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. Last question. If you could use your platform to encourage anyone who might be struggling with their mental health, adoption trauma, the courage to be vulnerable, or just on the fence about asking for help, what would you say? Such a good question, as always. Um, and I would say, firstly, go slow. You know, it's okay that for it to feel scary and really vulnerable. Um, and so move at a pace that really feels right for you. And, you know, when you do, when you do search for therapeutic support, Take your time to like shop around, I like to say, of really finding um, a mental health professional with whom you feel safe, with whom you feel comfortable, who might, I, who might understand and relate to varying parts of your identity. I think that that's also important, if at all possible. Um, and with the courage to be vulnerable too, I mean, like we've talked about today, it's like, it's such a process. It can be such a process when being our authentic selves hasn't always felt safe in earlier life. And so, you know, also practicing some patience with yourself and leaning into that courageous decision to be vulnerable, to be your authentic self, um, to be patient with yourself. It's a process and it's not always easy and that's okay. And that that's okay. We're like undoing so much of what we've always known. And that's change takes time. Yeah. It does. That was a great answer and great advice. Thank you for that.
I'm so curious because we've there's been a theme too of you asking questions. Now I get to ask a question. Sure, sure. Jalan, would it be okay if you answered that question too? And perhaps not so much about adoption trauma, but if you could use your platform to encourage anyone who might be struggling with their mental health, the courage to be vulnerable, or just on the fence about talking to someone or asking for help, what would you say? I would say I understand um, because I've been there and I, I know what it's like to know that you need help to maybe not know what exactly it is that you need help with, but to know that there is something there that needs to be addressed. And also I would say go slow, um, get comfortable just accepting the feeling that it's okay to talk to someone. Um, and then try and find someone that you feel that you align with. If it needs to be, if you're a guy and it needs to be a guy, if, you know, you need to find someone that culturally looks like you do that. Um, but I also would say don't be more afraid to get help than you are to stay stagnant because That's therapy, therapy is life changing and it can give you so much freedom from so many things that we don't even know that we can do differently. Um, it'll challenge your thinking. It'll, it'll challenge things that you're doing that you don't have to do and that are unhealthy, but you don't know how to do different. Um, and it's important. And I would encourage internal family systems because that modality for me is just everything. Um, but you may need to start with just talk therapy or a coach or a friend, but start. Love that. Love all of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Same here. I say what he says. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we did what it, Rich. We, we did, did it. it. <laughs> we did it. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to do this with you and to do it with a topic and things that were difficult because it shows that no matter who we are, that we can do hard things and that we can have hard conversations and that yeah. we can have healing conversations and that we can talk about things that we may feel uncomfortable about or that, you know, mm -hmm. we may carry shame with, but that we can do it. Mm -hmm. And if I can do it, anybody can do it. And same here. You know, mm -hmm. right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So thank you thank so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for like offering this, for coming up with this, for even asking the questions in the first place. Thank you, Jalan. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Thank you. If people want to find you online or on social media, where can they find you? Um, they can find me on Instagram and Facebook, um, Rachel Forbes LCSW. So on Instagram, it's rachelforbes.lcsw. And on Facebook, I think it's just Rachel Forbes LCSW. Yeah, and my website is ForbesPsychotherapy.com, so you can also find me there. Perfect. Well, again, this has been such an honorable and deeply healing experience. Um, I think that we set the tone for vulnerability being something that is not something you need to shy away from, and I'm grateful that we were able to do this. So thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you do. And thank you for the way you do it. 
Oh, see, you have such a way with words right back at you, right back at you. Thank you so much for holding this space with me.